Well, good morning. We are going to continue our study in the God I Don't Understand series. And this morning we're going to be looking at the question, how can the biblical sexual ethic be good for everyone? So we're going to read from Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27, Jesus says, or excuse me, it says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed after three days, and rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. This is God's word. You can be seated. So, as I said, we are going through uh, a series called The God I Don't Understand. And this morning we're going to be looking at the question, how can the biblical sexual ethic be good for everyone? And in this series, we're talking about some of the really difficult issues um, or problems that we have with the Bible, both culturally and also theologically. Uh, and we talked about... Um, in this series, we talked about the, uh, the problem of the picture of God in the Old Testament compared to God in the New Testament. Then we talked about violence, and so this morning we're going to talk about sex. Um, I've said this before, but I think for the first time maybe ever, people are leaving the church, and it's not because of spiritual abuse or hypocrisy or any problem they had with their particular local church community being unloving or unaccepting, but plainly because they could no longer believe in the Bible and specifically in the God of the Bible. The argument or objection to the Bible goes something like this. If God is a God of love, then how can the Bible teach this? And many Christians are rocked by this stuff and they don't know how to answer it. And I've been saying this all throughout uh, this year of biblical literacy, the problem is we have a biblically illiterate culture that is using the Bible to critique a biblically illiterate church. And most Christians, if anything, have a very general understanding of what the Bible teaches. Uh, we know or we think we know Jesus. And so we simply ignore these things or try to put them out of our minds because we see, can't see the consistency between a certain teaching of Scripture and the person of Jesus. But with our deconstructionist culture and Me Too movement and down with the patriarchy and the other mantras going on, we can't do this anymore. You, you can't just ignore these things. You have to, um, you've got to do the hard work of seeking out the scripture and wrestling with these things. And that's a good thing because it's time for the church to recapture the authority and beauty of scripture and to rediscover the incredible story of God. The most high God, the God who created us and loves us, um, the God who enters into time and space to redeem us at the cost of his own life. We need to find our story in that story. Now, one problem we have when talking about the subject of sex and sexuality and the Bible's teaching on it is that you can't separate the Old Testament teaching from the New Testament teaching on this one. Uh, the New Testament assumes and teaches the same sexual ethics as the Old Testament. Remember, the, the biblical writers did not see themselves doing something other than the Old Testament. 
Uh, they were Jews, and they saw themselves as continuing the story of the prophets and continuing the story of the law. It was a continuing story. And so the New Testament assumes and teaches the same sexual ethics as the Old Testament. Now, many object to the biblical sexual ethic because they say that this historical Christian and biblical view is harmful to certain people, especially LGBT excuse me, LGBTQI people. So here's the question I want to tackle this morning. Again, how can the biblical sexual ethic be good for everyone? And before we get into you know, the points of the sermon, I want to give a sort of disclaimer. And that's this. I know that for some of you, this subject is deeply personal. And that might be because of your own struggles with sex and your sexuality, it may be because of a loved one or dear friend who is gay, uh, transgender, or dealing with gender dysphoria or other sexual identity. And so my desire this morning is not to place a brick wall in front of you and say, this is the end of the discussion. Here is the truth. Deal with it. But rather to start a conversation and dialogue that should have already been going on in the church. Uh, we want to talk about how do we wrestle with God over these issues of sexuality that are so personal and so relationally sensitive. I think for many, this debate is framed as a choice between either scriptural faithfulness or love of neighbor. And the gospel doesn't pit love versus faithfulness or truth versus grace. Uh, we know that love is the supreme command of God. We are called to love and serve God while also loving and serving our neighbor. And that's what I hope that this conversation will be and what it will lead to. It will lead to faithfulness to both these commands, to love God supremely and to love our neighbor as ourself. So let's begin the conversation. I want to talk about what is the biblical sexual ethic, first of all. Now, when we talk about the biblical sexual ethic, I think we need to talk about where we're at as a culture. So most modern Western people would say that sex is about pleasure, self-expression, exploration, novelty, and spontaneity. And as far as I know, the one rule of our culture, sexual morality, is mutual consent. Uh, I got this from John Tyson, a uh, pastor in New York City. He says, the sexual liberation viewpoint says desire plus consent equals freedom. Desire plus consent equals freedom. But the question is, are we more free as a society, as a culture with our views on sex? Has this made us more free? Actually, the increase in violent pornography, open sex, cohabitation has not made us more free or more fulfilled. All the free open sex and access to pornography is producing less bonding and connection, and it's in fact producing loneliness. Last year, Britain appointed a loneliness minister because of this very reason. A loneliness minister. Because it's like we've created new issues now with our views of sexuality, and so we have to appoint in... You know, in politics, we have to appoint a loneliness minister. So this narrative actually looks more like desire plus consent equals disillusionment. Then, of course, there is the moral narrative or the fear side viewpoint. And that's moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. I call this the anti-Nike slogan, just don't do it. All right, but... This hasn't worked either. Statistically, when you look at the church compared with the culture, it's really not far different in its practice of premarital sex, cohabitation, lust, and the usage of pornography. So the way this really works is moral standards plus willpower equals failure. And this has produced incredible shame and guilt in the church. I mean, people struggling with these things and they can't talk about it. Uh, no one is, is discussing these things openly. There is so much shame and guilt surrounding them uh, because you just don't do it. You just don't talk about it. Now, God's view of sex is neither of these. And contrary to popular belief, the Bible does not have a low view of the body and sex, but in fact, a very high view of it. Oftentimes we think 
that the, the Bible's down on sex and sexuality, and that that is, in fact, is more of a Greek philosophy. That's Platonism, thinking that the body is bad. And, and so, you know, our culture thinks that it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It's about the emotional connection. See, the Bible actually, it doesn't teach any of this. It connects both body and soul. Both are created by God. God invented the body. He invented sex. He made the first humans male and female, sexually complementary, and he called them to be fruitful and multiply. The modern translation of this would be, have lots of sex, make lots of human covenant partners who will fill the earth with God's image. Sex is God's idea. Now, the first man and woman become a biblical prototype for marriage and sexual relationships so that when Jesus is questioned thousands of years later about marriage or divorce, he always references Genesis 2 and the story of the first marriage, highlighting the fact that they are male and female, that they become one flesh, so complementary halves that are united, and that in their relationship they are naked, this speaks of openness, transparency, uh, trust, and unashamed, without fear, there is authenticity and total vulnerability. And this is God's ideal, that sexual relations would be exclusively between one man and woman in a committed covenant relationship for life, that they can be naked and unashamed. Now, Paul says in Ephesians that marriage and sexual intimacy are not an end in themselves. We'll talk about this later, but the Bible never teaches that marriage is ultimate. These are actually a step on the way to something greater. The marriage is a picture to, for us of what God's covenant love is like. Marriage is a sign, first and foremost, of God's covenant love love with his people. It's not really about us, right? Uh, therefore, we have no right as humans, especially as followers of Jesus, to redefine that. Marriage is about God and his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love that is ultimately displayed in Jesus giving himself for us on the cross. It's God, God's said love, his covenant love. That's why marriage is a lifelong commitment of faithfulness to one's spouse. It's an unbreaking love, a forever love. Now, sex in marriage, therefore, is the way that we say to our spouse, I belong to you and you alone. It's a way to know our spouse deeply. It's a way to serve your spouse, a way to give pleasure rather than to get pleasure. And there's obviously an intimacy and vulnerability that comes with being sexually exclusive. Now, Jesus' followers abstain from extramarital sex and fight lust in order to witness how God works in the gospel. What do I mean? God calls his people into an exclusive relationship with him a marriage covenant, and to give him anything less in return is unfaithfulness. The Bible is basically saying then to us, you should not give yourself sexually to anyone until you have committed every part of yourself to that person. Just as God does not give his intimate love to people outside of a covenant with Jesus. Our lives as Jesus followers are to pattern God's life and love in every way. So we don't give our bodies sexually to someone until we have committed every other part of our life to them. Just like God does not give his intimacy to us until we are in the second, you know, a picture of that sexual intimacy until we are in deep covenant relationship with him. Finally, sex outside of marriage covenant, therefore, undermines the character quality of faithfulness, which is to be so integral to God's community, to God's community people. It's a huge marker of God's people. Faithfulness is necessary for true community, and it's so crucial, this mark of faithfulness, 
whether you are married or single, to be faithful first and foremost to the Lord and be faithful to the community that he's called us to. So Jesus calls his followers that are married, not just to sexual fidelity, but to total and complete fidelity to one spouse. In thought, word, and deed, you can find this in the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's a wholehearted or whole person devotion. And anything outside of that is out of sync with the way of Jesus. So this is the biblical ideal of how sexual relationships work. It's, it's within marriage. That's the context. Anything outside of or less than this, the Bible calls sexual immorality. So anything outside of one man, one woman, in a lifelong committed relationship, any sexual relationship outside of that, the Bible calls sexual immorality. And this term is used like the sexual junk drawer, really. Uh, you know, you ask the question, well, is, is this in there? Yeah, if it's outside of what we just said, the Bible teaches about sex, it's in there, right? Well, how about that? Yes, it's in there. It's the sexual junk drawer. And in multiple places, we're told that those who practice sexual immorality in any or all of its forms will not be part of God's kingdom. So there it is. So now the question is, how can this definition of sex and sexuality be good for singles? Same-sex attracted people, trans people, or people dealing with gender dysphoria. I mean, isn't this like the big tease from the Bible. You hear pastors in Christian books celebrate the goodness of only a certain version of um, masculinity or femininity. And it's a hyper-femininity. It's a hyper-masculinity. It's like, this is what it means to be a man. And for everyone else, you're reading this, you know, or you're hearing Christian pastors and teachers talk about this, and you think, where do I fit in? The answer is, you don't, according to that criteria. Or we hear people talk about the greatness of marriage and sex for everyone then who doesn't fit inside those categories. Well, too bad, right? It's like, where do the rest of us fit in? You don't. The question is, is this an accurate depiction of biblical teaching? No, it's not. It's more of a depiction of our culture being over-sexualized and its previous views of hypermasculinity and hyperfemininity, and now its rejection of that, be because it is toxic, because it's not actually accurate. Driving a truck, shooting guns, being macho does not make you a man. Wearing makeup, liking pink, you know, being into rom-coms does not make you a woman. Your anatomy. Your chromosomes is what makes you a man. Your anatomy, your chromosomes is what makes you a woman. And we need to get back to the biblical definitions of these things and stop emulating the culture. And this is so unfortunate that we are more shaped by the culture than we are by the Bible. And so this morning, I, I hope that we can correct some of this stuff. So Here's another question. Who gets sex and sexuality 100% right? Who gets it right? Nobody. Jesus. He's the only one that gets sex and sexuality right, or 100% right, right? So something we don't talk about enough, I think, is the sexual brokenness of human nature. We are sexual creatures, and this is something created by God. It's good, but because of the fall in Genesis 3, sin has tainted everything. So even, even something good like sex and sexuality is tainted by sin. We have unnatural desires, desires that God did not create us to have. We have gender dysphoria, confusion about uh, our bodies and our feeling out of sync with, in our minds with our bodies. We have gender dysphoria. We have misdirected desires. We objectify in sex, both the male and female sex. We use and abuse with sex. We make sex a totally selfish and self-fulfilling act. All of us suffer from sexual brokenness. Now here's some good news. Some of us will experience healing. 
all of us will struggle to some degree with sexual brokenness. And the great news is this. One day we will be made whole. One day we will be made whole. God will make us new. Those desires that are unnatural, those desires that are out of sync with who God created us to be, that are out of sync with our anatomy, one day will be removed in the new heaven and the new earth. This is something we need to remember, church. This is something we need to look forward to, and this is something that we need to remind one another of often. We need to remind one another, like we're all sexually broken. We're all struggling to some degree. We're all having to fight against unnatural desires that war against the Spirit of God and His work in us. See, the Bible is full of sexually broken people. Nobody gets it 100% right after Genesis chapter 3. There is incest, rape, polygamy, adultery, divorce, perversion, heartache, and so on. The Bible is filled with sexual brokenness, and yet the story doesn't stop there. God comes into the world to meet humanity in our brokenness and to heal our brokenness and to make all things new through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is good news. This is good. This is good. Now, I think part of the problem with this question of is the biblical sexual ethic good for everyone is that we have made some huge missteps as a church community. As I said before, and this is capital C church, the church as a whole, uh, we are emulating the culture more than we are the Bible. So let's talk about some of these common missteps. So here's one. The Bible holds marriage up as the ultimate relationship. God's best for people. And you hear people say stuff like this all the time. Pastors say stuff like this all the time. The problem is the Bible doesn't ever say this. And unfortunately, our culture, and especially the church, wrongly held up marriage as the only relationship in which we can experience love and intimacy. Think about that. The only relationship in which you can experience love and intimacy. It's no wonder that our nation, our country, legalized same-sex marriage, right? If this is the only relationship of love, if this is the only relationship that you can experience intimacy, how could we not? But the Bible doesn't ever say that. So we misstepped in this way. The Bible actually celebrates many and varied intimate and loving relationships that people can have. In the Bible, though marriage is held up as something good, something that God created, marriage is still penultimate. I mean, you ever read through Paul in 1 Corinthians? And I think just culturally we read Paul and you know, he says, listen, marriage is good. And then like in the next sentence, he's like, and singleness is good. And we're like, well, which one is it, Paul? And he's saying, no, you don't understand. It's both. And I think the problem is that we, we can't read it without our cultural ears or, or read it without our cultural eyes. We can't hear it without our cultural ears. And so we're confused by it. But Paul is celebrating both marriage and both singleness. Both are good. Why is that? Because marriage is only penultimate. It's not the end. It's not everything. Why? Because only God is ultimate. Therefore, the biblical sexual ethic does not refuse or bar people from God's best. God's best has been offered to everyone through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paige Benton uh, wrote an article. It's on the internet. You can find it. It's called Singled Out for Good. And here's one thing she says within that article. It's great. She says, to be single is not to be alone. If someone asks me if I am in a relationship right now, my immediate response is, yes, I am in dozens. Our range of relational options is not limited to getting married or to living in the soundproof, isolated booth of Miss America pageants. Christian growth mandates relational richness. The only time folks talk about human covenants is in premarital counseling. How anemic. If our God is a covenantal God, then all of our relationships are covenantal. 
God is creating us for a variety of relationships and we can experience love and intimacy in many different ways. And so it's we, in fact, with this mess up, we are limiting ourselves. And again, we are holding out marriage and saying, oh, only these people can really experience intimacy and only these people can really experience love. It's a misstep. Misstep number two, if I don't have sex, I'll die. Not true. Many virgins or celibate people have lived very long, very full and fruitful lives. One of my favorite pastors and theologians was John Stott. He wrote probably one of the best books on the atonement of Christ. It's called The Cross of Christ. And John Stott lived for all of his life as single. And he did incredible things for the kingdom of God. And he had great relationships with both male friends and female friends. And he celebrated that. We should be holding these saints up to emulate them. We should be talking more about singleness and marriage. We need to bring marriage down to where the Bible actually puts it, and we need to take it off of its pedestal. Okay, misstep number three. If I don't have sex, I'll never have intimacy with another human being. Now, I mentioned this a little bit already, but this is simply not true. Again, it's our Western culture that has defined intimacy in this way. King David said that the friendship that he had with Jonathan was better than the love of women. Now we read that, we you know, read some homoerotic things into that in our culture, but that is actually not what's going on with David and Jonathan. Could it be that David and Jonathan had such an intimate bond that it was more meaningful and powerful than anything David did in bed with the multiple wives he had. See, we need to rediscover the true nature of intimacy and friendship in the church by celebrating all the varied relationships and relationship dynamics that God has given to us. Many people don't know this, but Freud is actually the one who has influenced our culture and the church in this way. See, Freud thought and taught that if you had affection or desired affection from an individual, whether it be your mother or your father, your brother or sister, or a friend, it was because of sexual desire that you had for them. And so this is brought in, it, it, it just kind of seep into our culture almost unaware. Because if you look at photographs from like a hundred years ago, you see all these men who are not gay and they are putting their arms around one another, holding hands, legs crossed over one another in photographs. And I was reading this article talking about how this is the way that men express their deep love and intimacy in friendship with one another. These men are not gay. They loved one another and had deep affection for one another. But Freud comes along and says, oh, that's sexual. That's sexual. You have sexual desire for that person. And so now it brings in the suspicion. And so now we are so uncomfortable as men to say to another man, I love you. To hug another man. To, to, be, to be affectionate with another man. See, I personally never had that problem because I had a father who loved me and affirm that love for me, was very affectionate with me, but, I, but he also was affectionate with his friends. He would tell his friends that he loved them and he would display that love for him. And so actually with many of you, when I first came here and we were getting into a friendship and a relationship, you know, over time I told you that I loved you. And some of you told me that that made you very, very uncomfortable at the time because you had never had a, another man tell you, you know, maybe beside your father, that. He loved you. You had never had another man express that deep um, love or affection for you. And it, and it made you really uncomfortable. And then, of course, some of you told me that now, though, growing in friendship and, and a deep fondness for one another, now you're comfortable with that, too. And you say, I can say, I love you, too. And that's a good thing. We should be celebrating, again, all the varied relationships that God has given us. Sex is not the only place that we can have intimacy. Therefore, God is not banning anyone from deep intimacy or covenant relationships. Our culture is. The problem is we define intimacy to mean only one thing, sex. The church 
again, needs to put marriage and sex back in its proper place. Misstep number four. If I don't find a spouse and have children, I will never be or have a family. Now, the Old Testament talks a lot about family. Family is very important in the story of God. And of course, it's the family of Abraham, right? That's who the promises uh, of the Messiah are going to come through. Then it's the family of David. And yes, the, the Old Testament does celebrate um, the blood family, and this is very important. But you know, it's interesting. When you come into the New Testament, though family is a huge theme of the New Testament, it is not the blood family. The story has changed. It's now a family of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. See, in the new covenant, God offers us in Christ all the love and security we will ever need, practically found in his family community, the church. Church, this means that we need to expand our idea of family to include friends, singles, and couples as surrogate aunts, surrogate uncles, brothers, sisters, grandmas, and grandpas. You know, we think about many of us in this community, we're not from here. It's interesting because during the holidays, many of you, you don't have a place to go because your family lives very far away and the cost of travel and all that Maybe we need to actually embrace that. Maybe this is God actually trying to turn our attention to the focus in the New Testament on God's forever family and binding those new bonds in Christ by spending the holy days or the holidays together, celebrating Easter together, Christmas together, Thanksgiving, these very important cultural holidays or church holidays that we do make them about the church family. We include singles at our table. We include married couples who are infertile at our table. They become a part of our family. And we redefine the family according to the New Testament. Not only that, but according to the Bible, in the new heaven and new earth, there will be no marriage except God's eternal covenant with his people. Remember when Jesus is asked about the resurrection and questions of marriage, he says, no, in the resurrection, it doesn't work like that. They're made like the angels of God and people are not given in marriage. Marriage is not gonna be a part of the new heaven and new earth. There will be no family except the family of God made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Church, we need to start with that definition of family. That's a good place to start. We need to start defining the family in that way. Every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, God's forever family. Now, misstep number five, if I don't find my other half, I'll forever be half a person. No, it's not half and half make one. It's one and one make one. And also, this is a, a misunderstanding of Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, when God has created Adam, he comments on Adam, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a partner, a helper. Now, of course, the answer to Adam's loneliness in that context is marriage. But it's actually bigger than that. In the continuing story of the Bible, it's about community. See, God created humanity in his image. Our God is himself a community, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so when God creates man, it's not good that man should be outside of community. He was created in the image of a communal God. And we have taken that Genesis 2 section to mean only one thing. Oh, this is about marriage. You know, we quote it at weddings. It's not good for man to be alone, so get married. No, it's not for good for man to be alone, for humans to be alone. We are meant to live in community. The lack of wholeness that we feel as humans, the inner black hole, is due to a broken relationship with God, our creator. And Jesus offers all people a healed and intimate relationship with God where we can experience human wholeness and flourishing. Misstep number six, 
I'm the only one who has to deny, my, to deny myself sexually. Not true. All followers of Jesus, just like Jesus, must submit and sacrifice their sexuality, their body, and sexual expression, their will, to God. We must submit and sacrifice both body and will to God. Now remember, Jesus is our example of this. Jesus sacrificed the love of the Father so that we could have it for all eternity. Jesus sacrificed the desires for sex and a human wife, and I think he definitely had them. Jesus sacrificed these because he looked forward to his eternal bride, the church. Jesus sacrificed the desire to have his own children so that his inheritance, the Holy Spirit, might fall upon us so that we might become the children of God. All Christians are called to practice sexual fidelity and self-control either in marriage or in singleness. And in this way, we all have to go against our selfish, autonomous nature that wants to do life our, our own way and on our own terms. And, but in this way, we follow the way of Jesus. We share the fellowship of his suffering and we become more like him. Everyone must sacrifice their sexuality and sexual expression to God, either in marriage or in singleness. Misstep number seven this is a big one. I was born this way. Now, as much as people make this statement, there is at this time no scientific proof of a gay gene. But Christians of all people should be able to resonate with the fact that because of sin, we are all born into brokenness with broken and wrong desires. And according to the Bible, God holds us morally responsible. So every single one of us, as I said in the beginning, we all have different manifestations of this brokenness of sin. Some have a deep desire to hurt people. We must withstand those desires and bring them under the control of the Spirit. Some people have a disordered desire for greed, for power, right? Those have to be brought under the control of the Spirit. Likewise, with what the Bible calls sexual immorality and so on. What God offers all people who suffer under the brokenness of sin is the offer to be born of the Spirit and to be given a new nature with new desires. This is found in Galatians 5. Desires to love God, desires to obey God, desires to please God. Does this mean then that those other desires go away and will stop? Maybe not. Probably not. Maybe not. The Bible never promises that in this life. You may struggle with those desires for the rest of your life. But, as I said before, one day we will be freed from sin and sinful desires when God makes all things new. The Bible does teach, however, that we can be renewed in our minds by God's word and by his spirit, by living in honest, transparent, authentic community and be given new desires by God and that those old desires can begin to lose their power and control over us. And this is the call of every Christian to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the desires of our past or natural self. This is what Paul says again in Galatians 5. You know, this is the works of the flesh. And you must crucify these things, put them to death because you are God's people and walk in the spirit and the fruit of the spirit. Here's another objection. This doesn't seem fair. 
What do we mean by fair? And what parts of life on this fallen planet are fair? Is it fair that we were born in bougie Sonoma County, live here in 2019, and that some were born in the slums of Sri Lanka and lost their lives this last week in a terrorist bombing? Is that fair? It's not fair. So what do we mean by fair? I will say it is unfair that we often call same-sex attracted Christians to deny themselves in order to follow Jesus, all the while we court porn addiction, marital unfaithfulness, and divorce. Or if we're single, we hook up and somehow justify our sin as being more okay or more sanitary than theirs. It's unfair and unrighteous anytime we call others to costly follow Jesus while neglecting that same call in our own lives. That is what is unfair. Ed Shaw uh, wrote a book called Same-Sex Attraction in the Church. I highly recommend this book. He says this, For some reason in our generation, following Jesus is no longer about our sacrifice and suffering. Western Christians have by and large stopped denying ourselves. We now more talk about our right to be ourselves. Our Christian lives are more about self-gratification seemingly denying the existence of Jesus' words, his words about taking up our cross and following him. Our lives are a continuation of our previous lives with a thin Christian veneer, just being nicer to a few more people. The crosses we bear are the small annoyances we haven't yet managed to rid ourselves of, rather than any significant suffering we intentionally embrace because we are following Jesus and want others to follow him too. We've chosen to ignore that fact that Jesus calls his disciples to make a conscious and costly decision to sacrifice ourselves, to say no to things we might want, even deserve or need, because that's what it means to follow his example. Wow. Things we might want, even deserve, or need to sacrifice those things in order to follow Jesus' example. So is the Bible sexual ethic good? I think part of the issue is the definition of good. It's interesting because we live in a time where it's, the world is, you know, Western philosophy is choose your own adventure. Don't let anybody tell you what's right and wrong. You choose for yourself. You decide. You figure it out. And yet we have the audacity to say, that's not good. Says who? So whose definition of good are we talking about? What I think is good or what our culture thinks is good? Is that actual goodness? And isn't this how humanity got into the whole predicament that we're in now? Remember, Adam and Eve judged for themselves what was right, good, and true, rather than listening and obeying God who had created them, knew what he had created them for, and had richly given them all things to enjoy. They're pursuing autonomy and self-determination Rejecting God's limitations on them is what has brought sin and brokenness into the world. So when we talk about the Bible's sexual ethics being good for people, what we mean is that God defines goodness for us as our loving creator. God speaks to us in scripture as a father who dearly loves us and wants what is best for us. And as our creator and our father, he has put restrictions and limits on our freedom, not to keep us from blessing, but to preserve us for it, that we might become what we were created to be. Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson, in their book, Echoes of Exodus, the book we're doing for our men's fellowship, they say this, Escaping from Egypt is only half of the exodus. It's easy for us to forget this. 
In an age where freedom is understood as merely being freed from oppression, from constraint, or whatever, this aspect of liberation, as wonderful as it is, is only half of the deal. In the scriptures, more emphasis is placed on the freedom for, for worship, for flourishing, for growth in obedience and joy and glory. Human beings are not designed to be free from all constraint, slaves to nothing but our own passions, triumphantly enthroned as our own masters, even our own gods. Everybody serves somebody. So the point of the Exodus is not just for Israel or for us to find deliverance from serving the old master. It is for us to find delight in serving the new one. That's what we mean when we're talking about goodness. God has created us. Sin has distorted that creation, has distorted those desires. But God wants to bring us back into his plan, back into his creation, back into his order. God desires to give us a restored identity as his image bearers. He wants to bring us into covenant partnership with him through the work of Jesus and restore our original purpose to live under his rule and guidance, which will ultimately fulfill our heart longings. See, when you really stop and think about it, if you've experienced sex, you know it's not really what you're looking for. It's not what you're looking for. All the sex and all the intimacy and all the love and affirmation from men or women, hookups or whatever, can never fulfill you. Why? Because you were made for God. You were made for God. Your soul and body long to be reunited with him. That is the longing deep inside of you. One person said, Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. We think it's in sex. We think it's in power. We think it's in family. We think it's in accomplishments. But when we get it, there's just an empty hole of void. And so then we just press deeper into that thing or we move on to the next thing. No, you were created for God and you are searching for him in all the wrong places. And the gospel is this, God has come looking for you in the person of Jesus Christ. He came and he sacrificed for you. He laid aside his power and glory. He became man and yet he resisted the desires of selfishness and autonomy and self-will and self-determination to choose his own path and own self-fulfillment. No, he sacrificed all of that to bring us in and to make us a part of his family so that we could be brought back to God and find the love we've always been looking for. And he offers himself to you. He offers himself to anyone who is hungering, anyone who is thirsting, anyone who can't be fulfilled. He offers himself to you. Now, Jesus in his teaching here in Mark 8, as we read in the beginning, defines for all people what that offer looks like and what it means to follow him. Let's read it again. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their own soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus is offering himself to you. He's not offering you a way to save yourself, a way to find yourself. His offer is totally different. His offer is one of salvation, of rescue from sin and its destruction, from self-autonomy and its destruction, its salvation from ourselves. And Jesus says this, lose your life for my sake. 
kill what you think is right, good, and true, then you will find a new life in me, a new identity in me, and a new understanding of rightness, goodness, and truth. A new understanding of what it means to be human, of what it means to be a sexual creature created by God, and what it means to live in community and intimacy with others. Jesus says to us, come and die in order that you may truly live. And that's a really good thing when you feel, when you feel dead inside. That's a really good thing when you are lost. That there is a shepherd that has come looking for you and offers to lead you out of the dark wood that you found yourself in. It's a really good thing when you're lonely and you can't find community, intimacy, and love. God offers it to you. It's a really good thing when you are purposeless and directionless. It's a good thing. The biblical sexual ethic is good. And it's not just good for married people, it's good for single people too. It's good for all. Now, this is not the end of this conversation, but I think that this is a good place to begin. It's a good place to begin because the sexual revolution is unraveling in our culture. And we are going to have people who are disillusioned and sitting among the ashes of what they thought was their home, what they thought was their place, what they thought was their true identity. It's burning to the ground. And church, we need to be ready to receive these people into our family, into God's family, and say, you have a seat at the table. You have an identity with God's people a purpose, and a place here. You have honor in this community. We need to be ready for when that happens. God help us that we would be ready. Let's pray.